and allowing God to speak to your heart in that. But this morning, we're going to be looking at growth in the gospel-centered life. Growth in the gospel-centered life. And um, this morning, I'm going to share with you uh, a diagram based upon some of these passages that changed my life 25 years ago. 25 years ago, Marcy and I were married, going on 26. And one time while we were um, out in Guymon, Oklahoma, um, in fact, that's at Stella and Damaris's grandparents' church. We were in Guymon, Oklahoma, and we were at First Baptist Church of, of Guymon, Oklahoma, and a man named Steve Estes came and preached. Steve Estes was the, was the young man that led Johnny Erickson Tata to the Lord. So some of you would say, who is Johnny Erickson Tata? Johnny Erickson Tata, when she was 17 years old, dove off of a little floating swim platform in a lake, um, I believe up in Michigan, and she dove into shallow water, and her head hit the bottom, and it, and it uh, broke her spinal cord. Um, she nearly died. Uh, she floated to the surface, and that started the last 60 years of being a quadriplegic. But at, 70, at 17 years of age, here she had broken her neck, she was in a hospital, and this, this fellow, Steve Estes, was a year ahead of her in school. So both of them teenagers. And over a period of months, Steve Estes was sharing his faith with this beautiful young lady whose life was forever changed, and uh, she prayed to receive Jesus Christ. They have remained fast friends over these last 50-plus years. And um, Steve Estes, while preaching at First Baptist Church of Guymon as a special preacher, special speaker for the weekend, shared with us, um, shared with me this diagram that so many have shared before him. And um, I believe that it will help you this morning as we grow and as we continue, as we consider the great Word of God. So, growth in the gospel-centered life. Hopefully, you have your notes and we're ready to go. Let me pray as we turn to Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 15. Let's pray. Father, I do pray now that as we turn to your word, as we read not only these two passages, but the other passages that are supportive passages in this sermon, I pray, God, that your word would become alive to us. Lord, we know that it's already alive. Lord, I just pray that we would see that it is living. And I pray that you, you, by the power of your Spirit, would cause us to understand the word that you have for us today. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we thank you. Amen. Notice Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. First of all, notice where this is in the book of Romans. It's in what chapter of Romans? The first chapter that was very weak. Are you all awake there? It's Romans what? Romans 1. So that means it's at the beginning of the letter. And we know that Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 is the opening of the letter showing us our tremendous need for God's salvation. We see the human condition, the human condition of lostness. We see the human condition of being dead in our sins. But notice this early statement in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. The Apostle Paul writes to them and he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
Now, for those of you who are new to us, and I believe everybody needs to kind of recognize this, we say all the time, this word gospel, this word gospel means good news. This is the good news. This is the good news of God. In fact, you can write that above this, um, above the word gospel there. Good news. For I'm not ashamed of the good news, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is the great picture of this thing that we call the truth of God, the good news of God. And we're called to live according to the reality that is revealed in the gospel. In fact, it's a good thing for us to recognize as a church that there's a few different ways in which the word gospel is used. One of the ways in which the word gospel is used, it's talking about the truth, the good news. You can say that is from Genesis to Revelation, this is the gospel. This is the good news of God. The whole Bible is the gospel. Everything that God has given us in his word is the gospel. Now, we can sometimes be a little bit confused by this in our church talk and our church lingo. We can begin to think that the gospel is, is, you know, some people say, well, you know, I know the whole Bible is important, but just give me the gospel. Okay, what he really needs to hear is just the gospel. Just tell him the gospel. What we mean by that is perhaps the plan of salvation. And that's what a lot of people, when they talk about the gospel, they're talking about Jesus came, he lived, he preached the word of God, he died on the cross, he rose again, and anyone who believes in him can be saved from their sin. If we would believe upon him and receive him, as the gift of God for our eternal life. Some people would say the plan of salvation is the gospel. I want us to see here that the Apostle Paul is talking about, yes, the plan of salvation, but he's talking about all the truth of God. The truth of God is the power of our lives. So if we are Christians, we are called to live in this great power. We are called to live a life that is centered, listen to this, that is centered around this power. That this power is at the center of everything. And the Apostle Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of this. And indeed, he's not. We see that he is jailed. We see that he's beaten. He's chased. He's maligned. He's ridiculed in every way. There is no shame in his heart about the gospel of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, notice this. He also writes to a, a church called the, Corinth, the Corinthian church. And notice what he says in 1 Corinthians and verse 15. And this is going to be very important for us as we come up on Easter. We, we often recognize chapter 15 is about the resurrection, but it's, but it's more than that. Notice here 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And then notice what he goes through. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That means it was prophesied that he would die, and he did. That he was what? Buried, and that he was what? Raised on the third day, and what does it say there? In accordance with the Scriptures, just as it was prophesied that he would do. So I want you to circle a couple of things in that passage. Look what it says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This is is the first importance thing, that Christ died. Circle that. Christ died. 
And then look at the next one, that he was buried. Circle that, that he was buried. And then look at the next one, and he was raised. He was raised. So he died, he was buried, and he was raised. Now, this, this mechanics of what happened with the body of our Lord Jesus Christ is the picture of God's grand plan to save the world. That he would say, let me show you how much I love you, and I'm going to redeem the world to myself. I'm going to deal with your sin problem, with your death problem, and I'm going to show it to you by laying down on a wooden cross and giving my life for yours. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And if I lay it down, I have the power to take it up again. And Jesus said, because I have died and risen again, you can live too. This is the great power of the gospel for our salvation. Now, many people, when they do think of a gospel-centered life, they, they, they often have a view of, yes, I know that Jesus died for my sins. Now, I'm amazed, even though we preach that every single week, we talk about that every single week, um, I am amazed that there are some that are here in this room that when we talk about the gospel, um, that somehow Jesus is not at the center of that for you. Somehow it's still about us. Somehow it's still about us coming to church. Sometimes it's, it's still about us doing and going through certain motions. It's, it's still about um, uh, ultimately looking at what we do. But friends, Throughout the Bible, we see that the, the, the story of the Scripture is, is not all about what man has done so much as it is about what God has done and His work in reconciling the world to Himself, as it says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 at the top, for our salvation. So the first thing I want you to notice from this morning is, number one, the gospel is the power of God that brings the dead to life. In Romans 1, it says, for we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but God makes us alive together with him in Christ. But this is, the, this is the power of God. The great news of his salvation is what brings us to life. Look at the next part here. The gospel among the Col Colossian church was bearing fruit and growing. So the whole message of God's salvation was bearing fruit. Now, I want you to see this. Look at Roman, or Colossians chapter 1 and verse 6. It says, this same good news, you see the words there, good news, this same gospel or good news that came to you is going out all over the world. And look what it says. It is bearing fruit everywhere, underline it, by changing lives. Just as it changed your lives from the day that you first heard and understood, understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. You see, this is the good news of the gospel, that God would have grace upon us, and He would have grace upon us through Jesus Christ, that He would give to us His Son to die in our place. Notice the next part here. So, the, the problem, though, is, is that while many people recognize that the gospel is God's power of salvation, and while some, among some, it is bearing fruit, it was amidst the, Colossi, the Colossians, we see in other places of Scripture that the gospel, among others, is diminished in its transforming power. 
Fill that in. Notice that. The gospel, among others, is diminished in its transforming power. Now, I want us to look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. And we see the same theme of God's power and His power for salvation, His power for transformation. But we'll see at the end of this passage that, that there's not everyone is growing in this. And this is part of my concern for us. In this room, there are some who are growing in a gospel-centered life. They're growing in what we're going to see in the next few minutes of, of having a, a bigger and bigger view of God and a more proper view of ourselves. And, and the grace of God is becoming more sweet to them. Then there's, there's others in this room that you're here and you're seeking and you're, and you're, you're trying to understand, but you're struggling to see what the big deal is about. And you're, you're struggling to have victory in your life. And I just, I want us to see that that when we begin to see what God has done in the Scripture through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that His transforming power can come to our lives. Um, but when those things diminish, then we only are met with frustration. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. But His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who was called to us, his own glory and victory, or glory and excellence. Would you circle those words, knowledge of him? You see, the gospel has to do with knowing something. It's growing in knowledge, growing, learning of him. So look at verse 3 again. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who, was call, who called us to His own glory and excellence. Verse 4, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. This means that you, you come and you, you receive God's divine nature. You come and receive His goodness, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Verse 5, for this very reason, make effort, every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Can you underline faith and virtue? Look what he says in verse 5. Here's what we're to make every effort after, and that's important. Make every effort to supplement your faith in virtue, in virtue with knowledge. Just underline that one word, knowledge, at the end of verse 5. In verse 6, and knowledge with self-control. Underline self-control. And with self-control, steadfastness. Underline steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. Verse 7, and godliness with, underlined, brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with, circle it, love. You see, this is the ultimate result of growing in the gospel-centered life. The ultimate result is that we come to be more like God in His love, because for God is love, this is who He is. Now, look at verse 8. 
For if these qualities, the ones that you just underlined, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being, uh uh-oh, ineffective and unfruitful. Isn't that great? But it's, we, we see the reality that we can become ineffective and we can become unfruitful in our Christian life. Look at verse, nine, or verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9. But whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, 2 Peter chapter 1 is showing us that sometimes Christians can live a life that is not the gospel-centered life, but is perhaps a self-centered life, or perhaps a world-centered life. And when we move away from the gospel-centered life, when we move away, listen to this, from growing in the knowledge and experience of God, when we move away from that life, this describes that we are nearsighted. Now, I don't know about you, how many of you have often been mixed up about whether you're nearsighted or farsighted? Anybody? Am I the only one I'm like, it took me a long time to figure out, you know, because you nearsighted for it, you say, well, you're just slow, buddy, if you don't understand that. Well, the problem is I am neither nearsighted nor farsighted. That means I have to be able to have glasses to see far away and up close. So, but nearsightedness means you can see up close, but you can't, you can't see far away. And that is what is the description here that when we move away from the qualities that are listed here of pursuing God in faith, notice what it says, in faith and in virtue or that which has moral value, like God. So in faith through moral value, knowledge, that's learning about God. That's learning the truth. And then with moral value and the knowledge of God, look at the next one. What is that in number six? Self-control. You say, oh, yeah, that's a hard one. Yeah, well, that's one of many hard ones. But that's what the gospel brings to us is that the world doesn't have a lot of self-control. Just let me do what I want to do. Why did you do that? I don't know. I just did it. I mean, it's one of the reasons that, do you know what some of the most productive space in the grocery store is? What is the most productive space for selling stuff at the grocery store? At the checkout, you know. Because people come there, and most of the checkout stuff is impulse buying. So, you know, it's, it's just whatever is right. They're most tantalizing with the right profit margin. Billy Johns could come tell us all about this, being a manager for Publix. And some of you who have managed things, you know, you're wanting to, to put the things there that are most likely to move quickly with a good profit margin. That's, that's a very prime spot. And to some degree, maybe... There's a fair amount of those items that you're playing on people's lack of self-control. I mean, you know, the Twix candy bar, you know, whatever it is there that's that's your favorite that seems to be um, there. Notice this, that in our virtue and knowledge of God, 
that God begins to bring self-control into our life, and this self-control brings a steadfastness. That we're not driven and tossed by the world and the winds that are around us. And this steadfastness results in what? Godliness, being like God. God is steadfast, immovable, always abounding in that which is true. Look at verse 7. And this godliness leads to brotherly affection. You see, what we see in God is that He has an other-oriented love. God's love is not a a self-love so much as it is a beautiful love that sacrifices self for others. This is true agape love. And so we see that all of this results in the fact that God's people begin to love others. And this brotherly affection results in the ultimate value of true love in God. So if these qualities are yours and increasing, you're not going to be unfruitful. You're going to be… But look at verse 9 once again, whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted. Now, What I want us to talk about is our vision of the cross. What I want us to see that the gospel is not merely the plan of salvation. The gospel is not merely your fire insurance. The gospel is not merely your being rescued the moment that you came to Christ and that you say, okay, that's great, I'm I'm good. Now I can go live my life the way that I want. Notice these statements that are here underneath this um, in the box, in the circle that is there. If Christians are to grow into maturity in Christ, we must deepen and enlarge our understanding of the gospel as God's appointed means, or you can put underneath that God's way. God's appointed means or His way for personal and communal transformation. Now, let me remind you of a couple of things. The gospel is not just about you. The gospel is about God's people. In America, we have a real problem with individualism. We make everything just about me. What, you know, what, what about me spiritually? What about me and my likes and my… What, what is good for me? This is where consumer-driven Christianity comes from. I go to that church because of what I get out of it. You say, well, isn't that a good reason to go to, the church, go to church? Well, it should play into that, that you're, that you're able to receive some good things. But, you know, it's more than that. When we read the Scripture that we see from Old Testament to New Testament, we see that it's about God's people and God's people being together and living lives of faith together. From Old Testament to New Testament, it's always talking about His people together. And so we see that the gospel is how God grows us, yes, personally, but it is also to grow us as a church family, as a church body. Now, one of the things that's being lost in this present day and time is that there's just a lot of emphasis on the personal nature of it and very little emphasis on the corporate nature of it. If the church is seeking to attract more people through entertainment, it's seeking to build a crowd not a church. Let me just say to you, it's actually easy to build a crowd. What do I often say about that? A train wreck can get a crowd, right? But it is very different to actually build a church. 
A church is a body of believers who have come to understand not, that the gospel is not only for them, but the gospel is for them and others, the people that they are related to. And so we're not living individual Lone Ranger Christian lives. What we are doing is we are living in a community of faith. Now, don't, don't associate communal with communism. I mean, I, I understand that those concepts are not, not totally uh, uh, distant there. But the true communal body um, of the world is the lives that are in Christ discovering the freedom that he gives and the victory that he gives that we can live together in brotherly love as God has originally intended. So, but the gospel is the way of transformation. Now, look at this. I'm going to make five quick statements here. Number one, the gospel is not just the door to life in Christ. It is the path of life in Christ. There's some people that stop with it being the door. Well, I heard the gospel and I got saved. Well, have you heard the gospel and gone on living? Is the gospel still with you? Is the gospel still driving you? You see, it's not just the door to life in Christ. It's the path of life in Christ. Look, notice number two. The gospel is not just the means of our salvation. It's also the means of our transformation. This is how you're changed. This is how you're changed. Some people say, well, I don't want to change. Well, you may need to look and see whether or not you actually understand the gospel because the gospel is all about rescuing you from a life lived in sin to a life lived in righteousness, honoring to God. And so change is a, is a wonderful thing. The transformation that Christ brings to our life is what He is after, not only in our salvation, but in our day-to-day transformation. Number three, the gospel is not only the deliverance of sin's penalty, but it's also the release from sin's power. This means that you're no longer under the power of sin, but now you're under the power of Christ. Now you're under the life-transforming power of Christ. Yes, your sin penalty has been paid, but now the, the power of sin over your life has been broken. And you can read Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11 to see that beautifully and clearly. Notice number four. The gospel not only makes us right with God, it also frees us to delight in God. That the greatest desire of your heart can become this God who has saved you, who's showing himself to you in his word and in your daily life. And we do that by faith. We don't see him yet, but we know of him by his word. We know of him by his people. We know of him by the preaching of his word. And so, church, be encouraged that it's God's intent that you would not only be made right for him for salvation, but it's that you would become more like him, that you would become to delight in him. And the more that we delight in him, the holier holier and holier we will become. This is justification versus sanctification. Justification happens the day that you are converted to Christ. Sanctification is an ongoing process the rest of your life of becoming more like God. In short, number five, the gospel changes, fill it in, everything. It changes everything. 
Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 on the screen in front of you. Therefore, if, in, in fact, let's read this out loud together. Can we all read this out loud together? It's on the screen in front of you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Look at the screen. Let's read it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Don't turn your sheet over yet. Look back at the bottom of that page on side one. Aren't we sometimes tempted to just think of the gospel as saving us? Do we see the gospel as that which empowers us? The truth of, listen, the truth of what Jesus did on the cross to motivate us to remember him, to love him, to walk with him. I want you to see this for just a moment. That when we have set this table week after week, we have looked at the fact that coming and remembering the death of Christ for our sins. Many of you have commented over these weeks where we have emphasized that and we've observed the Lord's Supper every Sunday during this time, that many of you commented that, man, I found myself being emboldened not to sin. I found myself living with joy closer to Christ. I found myself not wanting to sin, but wanting to live in righteousness. Do you know what was doing that? It was the reminder that Christ died for your sin. You see, the true Christian, the more he sees what Christ has done, the more she knows the depths of what Christ has done for her, the more she wants to honor him and obey him. I, I shared with you a couple of weeks ago that I was down in the Keys with my mom and dad and kind of taking care of some trees on their property, and there was a young man named Juan there, and uh, as we were talking and we actually had lunch together all there, I, I had the opportunity to, to just to talk about our lives just a little bit. And he said, wow, you guys lived in Africa? What were you doing in Africa? I said, well, we were missionaries. And he said, wow, you're missionaries. Wow. And he just looked at me and he was like, how do you do that? I said, well, what do you mean? And he goes, I mean, he just straight up asked. He said, how do you live the Christian life? I mean, that was just an honest question. Here he was, 22 years old, really sharp, good-looking, strong kid. I mean, smart, you know, just, just the whole nine yards. But he just had the honest question, and he finally found somebody he could just ask, well, how do you do that? You know, a lot of the world is wondering how anyone lives a life honoring to God. I mean, he's just looking at all the temptations, all the cool stuff that's around. He's just looking at his own life, his own impulses, his own desires, and he's just going, I could never do that. And I just looked at him and I said, well, I don't do it, but God does it in me. When he died on the cross for me and he changed my life and he, and he came and he rescued me from the sin, he broke the power. I don't have to live for me. I can live for him. And, and he comes and he does it. Galatians 2.20 says, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I don't live in my own strength, I live it by faith. Listen to this. It says, I live by faith in the one who died for me, loved me, and gave his life up for me, is what it says, Galatians 2.20. So this is the real picture that the Christian life and, and the gospel does not 
end in its impact at our salvation, that is just the beginning. Flip your sheet, safely look at this, and notice here with me as we keep going. I want us to look at gospel growth in everyday life. And gospel growth in everyday life is, it can kind of be looked at through um, a lens that is here. Um, I, I want us to first see underneath number one, at the point of conversion, I have a very limited view of God's holiness and my sin. When, any, when anybody first comes to faith in Jesus, it's very unlikely that they have a really big biblical view of God in His righteousness, in His holiness. In fact, they ha may have very little understanding of that at all. But somehow, by the power of His Spirit, by the working of His might, He is coming to bring into our mind and our heart an awareness that God is holy and that we are not and that we need to trust in Him. This is the nature of the gospel. So we come to realize that not only is God holy, but I am sinful. And in fact, most of us have this, we, we, we may not realize how sinful we are when we first come to Christ. Some do have a, have a very vivid picture of how messed up they are and how sinful they are. But to be honest with us, most of us don't have a very deep view of how separated we are from God. When we come to faith, we just hear that I'm a sinner and He is a Savior, and if we will trust in Him, we can come to Him. And, and we don't see ourselves as very far off from God. And that's part of what you see in this first part of the diagram. You're going along through life, and then there's conversion. And at that point of conversion, we see the cross. And we see the cross that is bringing us to God. And so we embark on a journey that goes two directions in one way in our mind and our heart. We come to understand two things. Notice the one that's pointing upward. We have a growing awareness of God's what? Holiness. We're starting to see how holy He is. And the more we read the Scripture, the more we see that, the more we read the Scripture, we come to, to recognize that He's not just pretty good. He's ultimately good. He doesn't get it right most of the time. He gets it right all the time. It's just not, it's not that he doesn't have a little bit of sin. It means that he has no sin. See, we, 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 come to, we come to start to grow in our knowledge of that. And the average person that maybe comes to faith in Jesus right away, they, they may not have a real good picture of who God is, but over a little bit of time and over hearing some messages and over starting to read the Bible, we come to realize that no. God is great. He is grand. He is immense, not just in his power, but listen to this, in his perfectness. And that, that almost seems impossible to us at first. And, and for some, I mean, I remember the night that I was talking to my sister on the phone. She was in Birmingham, Alabama, and I was here in Hollywood, and I was starting to read the Bible and starting to grow. And I grew up in this church, and I said this. I said to her one night, I said, you know, I'm enjoying reading the Bible more. I'm, I'm starting to grow. I'm starting to pray more. This is my senior year in high school. And I said to her, I said, you know, I'm starting to see that for every place that the Bible contradicts itself, there is so much truth in it still. 
Your pastor said that. Your pastor used to believe that. There was a long dead silence on the phone. My sister said, what? She said, you've grown up in our church and you don't understand that the Bible is protected by God for in this day and time, that there are answers to those things that appear to be contradictions, that his word is his holy, eternal word, perfect in every way. Just because you don't understand it, you're, you're impugning it, you believe that it's wrong. Now, she didn't say it quite like that, but I mean, it was something along those lines that she was just saying, Andrew, I hope you will come to understand that God's word is infallible and true that you can trust it in every way. And just because you don't understand something or it doesn't on first sight line up with your logic, that there's not very valid understanding of what it truly is. So I'm just saying that I didn't understand God and all of his holiness. I didn't understand that his word was reliable and true. So I, I started on this journey of growing So notice, number one, at the point of conversion, I have a very limited view of God's holiness and my sin. Don't really realize how hard my heart is against him until he comes and moves. Look at number two. As as time goes on, I should grow in my awareness of both of these. Now, there's some people that they like studying about God's greatness and his holiness, but they don't like studying about their own sinfulness. We often don't like to be thought of ourselves as helpless in our sin. We often don't like to be thinking of ourselves as having a heart that has so many different motivations that are against God. You see, but as we begin to grow, we begin to see God as He actually is. Fill that in. I begin to see God as He actually is. And I want you to notice Isaiah 55 and verses 8 through 9. We, be, we come to realize this. Look, look at the screen in front of you. Let's read out loud Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9. Are you ready? Here we go. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Verse 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So how far do the heavens go above the earth? Apparently infinite. God is infinitely greater in his wisdom than we are and in his thoughts. You see, that's what the Christian starts to realize. Wow, he is grand and he is glorious. We're growing in this. In fact, I would love, if you would, turn to the very back of your Bible. Go to the very back of your Bible, Revelation chapter 5. This is the last book of the Bible in Revelation. John is on the Isle of of Patmos. This is toward the end of his life. And God in his great wisdom and mercy comes to John, the disciple of Jesus, that now is in his 90s and most likely Christ's suffering and death and resurrection and ascension to the Father had happened probably 60 years earlier. And so the church has been growing during this time, and we're going to see John writing 1 John, which comes just before this, but now we come to Revelation, and we see that John has a vision. And I want you to see in Revelation chapter 5, 
this vision that John has. And you talk about a grand view of God and, an under, and a proper view of man. Look at Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1. So John is writing, and he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Verse 2. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, look what it says, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll in its seven seals. Verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth. Verse 7, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand hand of him who was seated on the throne, verse 8, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, verse 9, and they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, verse 12, saying with a loud voice, voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Do you see the grand view of God? You see, this is the grand one in heaven that no one can open the book of life except him. This is a very high view of God, the one who is holy and worthy. And so I begin to see God as he actually is, and I also begin, second bullet point there, to see myself as I actually am. This is what happens in a gospel-centered life, that you're growing in awareness of God's goodness, and we're growing in an awareness of our sinfulness. In Jeremiah 17, in verse 9, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So the next time you hear Oprah or anyone else say to you, well, you just got to trust your heart. Go, no! Don't do that. Don't trust your heart to lead you. Trust the Word in the Spirit of God to lead you. Your heart can be deceived. Your heart is sick. You say, well, I'm saved now. Well, let me tell you, you're saved, but your heart is still in the flesh, 
and you can still be deceived. So my friends, we need to start to see that, wow, Jesus has rescued me, put me in the position of Christ, in this picture of my position now is in Christ. That's Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. But I'm having to learn to practice that. And what fires and what fuels that practice? It's the cross. It's the gospel of God. It's what he has done for us. So I want you to notice number three and fill this in. So number three is this. As this happens, as I grow in the awareness of both of these things, as this happens, the cross gets bigger and bigger in my mind and heart. What happens is I begin to see just how big the cross really is. So look at our diagram here. I want you to start to notice this. When we first come to Christ, you know, the cross isn't that big. I mean, we, I, I have an appreciation for it. There are some in this room that would say, I was just a child and I really I had a basic understanding that I needed Jesus. He died on the cross for my sins, but I hadn't really thought through all the implications of that. Others would say in this room, I mean, we heard from Teresa um, Wednesday night. Teresa was saying, oh, you don't understand. I did drugs for 40 years. When God came and called my heart to him, and when I started to realize the gospel, I immediately saw, what a great God. What a great cross that he would come and he would just call my name and set me free. So the cross to her, after living for over 40 years in a, in a life of great pain and agony and rebellion against God, and then God just kind of comes and reveals himself, God comes and rescues her out of that, well, of course, I mean, for her, the cross is going to be much clearer and bigger than for me as an eight-year-old. But notice here with me that, number three, as this happens, the cross gets bigger and bigger in my mind and into my heart. And notice what happens. And you can kind of use your own artwork here and start to click through these. Look what happens. As time goes on, you, the cross becomes bigger. You start to see how holy God is and how sinful you are. And you go, wow, he died for all that. And, and what about this? He died for the sins that I'm, still, that I'm still in now, that I'm struggling with. And even the things that are to come, he died for that too? You've you got to be kidding me. This is great grace. This is a great cross. This is a great cross that can come and rescue me out of the power of sin and death. So for a Christian, what should happen as you're growing is you don't just look at the cross the way you did the day you got saved as a child or whenever it was. You look at the cross in a growing way. You come to see that God's grace is greater and greater and greater through the years. And the more you come to see the holiness of God and the more you come to see the sinfulness of yourself, the more you come to see how great God's grace truly is. And that is a tremendously powerful motivating factor to walk with God in obedience. Notice this, number four. As we grow in the knowledge of God through his word and obedience, we also grow in awe of his grace. You know, this is why many, many people that have walked with the Lord and have been growing in his grace, they talk about grace a lot. They talk about the doctrines of grace a lot. The doctrine of our depravity before God and God's soul 
ability, God's sole ability and his sole plan to save us, that he would come and give to us a grace that we cannot refuse and draws us into the knowledge of his son. We are amazed by his grace. You see this, fill it in. As we have a greater appreciation of his grace, we have a greater desire to obey. You see, redemption comes first and obedience comes after. We don't start obeying and then are saved, then are redeemed. No, we see the redemption of God and then we are fired up to obey. You see, fill it in, his grace fuels our obedience and faith. So the more that we're in awe of what he's done, the more we don't want to go against it. We don't want to misrepresent it. We say, no, I'm a child of God. I've been saved by the blood of Christ. Why would I do that? You see, that's, that's a very powerful way to begin to see that, man, these drugs or these drinks or these values or this porn or whatever, these TV shows, this line of thought, this doesn't go with the gospel. This doesn't go with what he's made me to be. Why would I continue to do that? You see, that's where the power over sin comes when we begin to see the grandeur of the cross. Go back to that one. We, when we see the greatness of the cross, uh, God, there you go, thank you. When we see the greatness of the cross, we have less of an appetite for sin. And if some of you are saying, I don't, really? That hadn't happened to me. Well, even at this moment, say, Lord, let that happen to me. Lord, let me start to see the greatness of what you did for me. Let me start to see your holiness and my sinfulness and the way the cross brings us together through your grace. And Lord, let me love that more than I love my gossiping tongue or my negative heart or my unforgiveness or my fear of man. You don't need to be afraid of what people think. You need to love what God thinks. And when you love what God thinks, you won't, you won't be afraid of what people think. When you know what God thinks, when you, when you fear him, you will have no longer a need to fear the people around you and whether or not you're going to be a success or whether or not you're going to be a failure. When we're right with God, that's all that matters. And when we start to see the cross and what he's done to show us that he loves us, then that's all that matters. We find our identity in him. And when as we find our identity in him, we find obedience and faith. Look at number five. Unfortunately, unfortunately, this is like the end of that second Peter passage. Unfortunately, sanctification or growth in holiness, sanctification doesn't always work as neatly as we would like. Our sin and our flesh tend to minimize the gospel. You see, when we start getting away from the Word of God, when we start getting away from the preaching of God's Word, when we start getting away from worship, when we start getting away from true Christian fellowship, people who are fired up about what God has done, we start to not see our sin the way God sees it, and we start to not see God as, they, as the way the, world, the Word shows it. So 
I am likely, fill these in, I am likely to underestimate God's holiness and power, and I am likely to overestimate my own righteousness and ability. So we start to say, well, I'm not that bad. And, you know, it's, it's okay. I mean, this isn't really that bad. And if I really have a problem, I can, I can overcome this. We, we start to think we can do things without God. We, we need to remember John 15 where Jesus looked at His disciples and He said, hey, just really understand this. Without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing that truly is eternal. You can do nothing that truly matters without me. You cannot overcome, listen to this, you cannot overcome your sin without me. That's why when we look at the cross and we see, wow, he died for me, a holy one, the only holy one from heaven came and he died for my stupid stuff. We start to see he's the only one that can make me stop doing what I so am prone to do in my flesh. And let me tell you that this, this glorifies Him, but, but what we do is when we get away from that, I underestimate God's holiness and I overestimate my righteousness. Look at number six with me. When our spiritual growth is stunted, stunted by lacking in the qualities mentioned in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7, our view of the cross will begin to, fill it in, shrink. You won't see the cross as that big a deal. This may be the moment when you come into church and you walk in and you didn't read the email or the text or whatever, and the table is set, and there's something inside of you that goes, hmm. Remember we talked about how evil it would be for you to not want to remember the cross of Christ? He gave us this order. He gave us the table to remember. He gave us weekly worship to remember and to hear and to grow. But when we begin to look at the world more and we begin to love ourselves more, we begin to shrink the cross. You see, when we think little of the cross, we think much of flesh and sin. You can't think much of the cross and think much of flesh and sin. But the more we think about the cross, the more we meditate on the cross, the more we rejoice in the cross, the less room there is in our heart to have the affections of the world that are passing away. So, let's draw some more. Notice what you need to draw. The cross gets smaller when we don't think about the gospel, when we don't learn of the Word of God, when we don't grow in the knowledge of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And you know, there's a lot of Christians, I believe, that sit in churches around America, perhaps around the world. That something happened way back in their childhood and they became a Christian. And somehow they didn't really grow in a love for the cross. And I want to ask you does that image maybe represent your experience? 
Have you not thought about what a big deal the cross is, or you somehow seem to be annoyed when somebody starts to present the gospel? Oh, here he goes again. Oh, this is the part of the sermon where, you, you know, you tune your mind out because this is where he's going to tell lost people that they need to trust in Jesus. Do you do that? Or do you go, yeah, listen, oh God, let them listen, let them listen. <clears throat> Lord, the person that's here that doesn't know you, let him hear what he's saying right now. Let him hear, let him hear, Lord, let him hear. Call them to believe what he's saying. Is that, is that what happens when you start to hear the fact that a Savior died and that all who trust in Him can be set free from their sin. Friends, I believe that if you will not have a stunted view of the cross, that you will experience God's great victory in your life. As the cross becomes greater, notice this on the right-hand side out there next to it. When some people first come to faith, the cross seems huge to them. They see it rightly. But as time goes on, they do not grow spiritually, so the cross shrinks in significance. Over time, they can come to take it for granted and think of it less. You may want to make a note below that. The Lord's Supper combats this. The Lord's Supper is to combat that tendency. But it's not just the Lord's Supper. It's your quiet time. It's your time with God. It's your time in His Word. It's your fellowship at church that hopefully as you're building relationships here that are centered around the cross of Christ, that you're saying, man, these people make me want to walk closer to the Lord. You see, as you are investing in those disciplines and as you are investing in those virtues that we see in 2 Peter chapter 1, if those are alive and increasing in your life, the cross becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, and you become more fruitful and more effective. But if those qualities are lacking and the cross is shrinking, then you are going into what I believe is one of the most miserable states a person can find themselves. Some of the most miserable people on the planet are not people who don't know Christ but people who do know Christ and are not honoring Him as they should. Those are some of the most miserable people on the planet because His Spirit is convicting them. You know there's so much more. Why are you ignoring me? Why are you ignoring me? Why are you afraid to trust me with this, this problem or this, this issue in your life? Trust me. See if I am not worthy of your trust. So, two simple questions here at the end. How much has the cross grown or how much has it shrunk since you became a Christian? For some of you, you might look back and you might say, I think I've been saved for 30 years, but I don't look at the cross as affectionately as I did in the first five years I was saved. Friends, you can change that. 
You can change that by running to the Word. Maybe, maybe for some of you would say, oh, pastor, the longer I know the Lord and the more I'm amazed, I'm amazed at the same passages that I've been reading over and over and over again about God's great work on the cross of Calvary. And I just, uh, the, the thing that amazes me the most is that He would save me. Why would He do that? He is so glorious and He's so gracious. He's so good. My friends, the cross, does it grow? Well, another question that you could ask yourself is, what do you need to do in order to get it moving more in the right direction? Maybe, maybe you need to really turn and say, I, I want to go from a shrinking cross where I've not thought much about what Jesus has done to thinking about it a lot more. Okay, so you're going to turn that back to that way. Others of you would say, well, I've been growing in my appreciation of the cross, but I want to grow more in this. I want to pursue this with all that God has. So my question is, what do you need to do? Now, you're already doing one of those things. You're here this morning. You're at worship. That's one of the key issues. For maybe some of you, it would be, this is your once-a-month worship service. Well, maybe you need to say, I'm not going to go once a month. I'm going to go every week. I would encourage you to do that. Maybe for some of you, it would say, well, I don't read the Bible on a daily basis. I haven't studied the knowledge of God in this. Maybe, maybe you need to say, Lord, give me a hunger for your word. And Lord, I, I will pursue. Maybe for some of you, you would say, I need to have more purposeful friendships that really love Christ. I want to encourage you to begin praying about that and letting God do his work to cause the cross to become greater and greater and greater. Amen? Would you stand with me for prayer? Holy Father, forgive us for the times when we have not thought carefully about what you have done at Calvary. Lord, forgive us when we've reduced it just to a Lord's Supper experience or we've thought of it only in terms of our redemption at a moment in time. Forgive us, Lord, that we have not continued to rejoice in the cross. Lord, I pray that you would reveal areas of our flesh and our sin that stand in the way of a proper view of the cross. And Lord, as you convict us of those things, Father, I pray that we would see the power of the cross over them to rescue us out of all of our sin and all of our darkness. The fact that you have so much more for us. Father, I pray that this message would help us to break free from sin and death and that we would see, Lord, the grand thing that you have done for us that makes all sin and the affections of the world to be incompatible with heaven, incompatible with where we're going, incompatible with our destination, with you. 
So Lord, I pray that we would truly honor you and all that you have done for us on the cross of Calvary. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.